Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Today we're moving on a little bit and we're going to be looking at uh, reproductive medicine. You know, we highlight prostate cancer, testicular cancer during the month of November. Um, and we're going to be unpacking that today in terms of the treatment, what impact it has on your ability to reproduce, to have kids, um, what precautions you should be taking. We're going to unpack all of that. So I have Dr. Yossi Unterslack, who's a gynecologist trained in reproductive medicine and a reproductive Productive Medical Assistant at Vita Lab, who's going to be sharing um, his expertise with us. Um, Dr. Unterslack, uh, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Nikki. Thanks for the invitations. Good to be back on your show. Great to have you back on the show. So let's get started. I mean, in the United States, I hear that 10 to 15 percent of couples are infertile. Um, let's let's unpack that a little bit. I mean, well, first of all, I think let's let's clarify what what infertility actually is, if you don't mind. Sure. So so we we, we say it about one in six couples in South Africa will struggle to conceive, and what we mean by that is in a couple who have had regular unprotected intercourse for at least the duration of twelve months and not had a conception, we w- we would consider that as a couple struggling with infertility. Um, and we would encourage a couple after 12 months to seek help and to try and get a diagnosis and to get onto some form of treatment. We, we do differentiate um, between women under the age of 35 and over the age of 35. And we feel that women over the age of 35, um, those couples should seek treatment within six months of trying to conceive um, because at this stage, time is of the essence. So, so Dr. Unterslag, um, the, so, so really when we're looking at women over the age of 35, maybe just give an idea of what actually happens to the body after 35 and why it's sure. more difficult. Sure. So, so I'll, I'll, what I'll just do is, um, explain briefly the, the reproductive differences between men and women, because I think that's very important to understand, especially with Great. the topic we're discussing today, which is more, more on about male infertility, but, if we look at reproductively how we differ, when a woman is in her mother's uterus, she's assigned a number of eggs for her lifetime. And those eggs are born with her, and they age with her, and they run out at some point. And that's when a woman would go into menopause. And the critical difference between that and um, the testicles or, or male fertility is that a man, when he's in his mother's uterus, he has a factory built in his testicles. And that factory has the capability of making new sperm every single day from the day a man goes into puberty until the day that that man dies. And so the critical difference there is that a woman is born with her eggs and they age with her and they're quite sensitive to aging. And as they age, their ability to um, yield normal, healthy embryos reduces, whereas a man, his sperm that is made today is either used the next day or so, or if it's not used, that sperm is broken down and new sperm is created. And so there isn't that critical aging factor when it comes to male inf- male fertility. And what a man can have is when that factory is built in his testicles, he can have that factory built in a way that it can't make enough sperm or the sperm that are made are not normal shapes or they don't move hard and fast and forward as they should. And that would cause male infertility. But if that factory is built correctly and it works, it generally will continue to work until a man dies. And we can take a, a man in his 70s who can't achieve an erection and we can take sperm from the testicle and achieve a pregnancy relatively easily. Um, contrast that to a female who once those eggs start to age, um, it becomes very, very difficult for us to achieve pregnancies. 
I see. Okay, thank you for that. And um, if there's been infertility in the family, for example, your parents found it difficult to fall pe- uh, pregnant or their parents, um, is it something that's passed on in the genes? So there are certain conditions that are genetic, things that you may have heard about, things like endometriosis, which is a condition which is more prevalent in those women who, su- who struggle to fall pregnant. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and uh, Things like fibroids, which are carried in families. Um, male infertility is very unlikely to be a genetic thing because um, what would have happened many years ago in a male who struggled to conceive is before the technology that's available today existed, that man would not have been able to reproduce. And so that, that faulty gene would not have been passed into his men. But today, okay. when we have techno- technology that can treat male infertility, we know that the men born of fathers who struggled with male infertility may themselves carry that same gene that their fathers carried. So, yes, it does follow familial patterns, but not always. And you can be an index case in your family who struggles to conceive where everybody else in the family um, has very good fertility. So a couple is struggling. They wait for, you say, give the period of one year, um, and after a year it's not happening. We also look at the, the age of the woman, and they come and see you. What is the first port of call? All right. So as, as everything in medicine, we need to listen to the couple and hear their story, um, because often just taking a good history gives you some, some um, guidance on where the pathology may be. Mm-hmm. So we would ask certain questions about the female's reproductive cycle, are her cycles long? Are her cycles short? Are they incredibly painful? Um, you know, what is her quality of life around the time of her period? And these kind of questions will guide us to where to, to look closer and which, which special investigations to do. And obviously, ask a sexual history. Is this couple managing sexually? Are they having difficulty having intercourse around the time of ovulation? Those kind of things, which often will come up if you ask directed questions, but won't necessarily come up if they aren't asked specifically. Um, and then listening to their, their story, taking a good history will give us an idea of where to start looking. But essentially, I always tell my patients there's four four kind of areas where we where we would start screening our patients. Obviously, with a male, we would look at his sperm. And it's important, even if we find in a female, that there may be female factor to screen the male as well and not to get tunnel vision and think this may be an isolated pathology. So in a male, it's quite quite um, simple to do a, a semen analysis, which gives us really a lot of information whether he's got any fertility problems. And then with regards to the female, there's three areas where we would look, and that is in the ovaries. What are the eggs like? Are there eggs? Is the woman ovulating? If she's ovulating, we can get an idea of what kind of quality her eggs are. And then we look at the uterus. Is there any factor in the uterus which may be preventing a pregnancy? And then lastly, we look at the fallopian tubes, which are really critical in conception. It's the area where the sperm and the eggs meet. It's the, um, the, the fallopian tube will receive the egg from the ovary. The egg will actually wait inside the fallopian tube for the sperm to arrive and fertilize the egg inside the fallopian tube. And if a woman has some pathology in her fallopian tubes, then um, she would struggle to conceive as well. So we would look at those four areas, the sperm, the tubes, the uterus, and the eggs, and try and you know, work out a differential diagnosis of where our pathology lies and then obviously direct our special investigations and our treatment um, depending on, on, on where we believe the pathology may lie. Fantastic. Dr. Ogdensak, we're going to take a quick break. Um, please stay with us and we'll continue with the conversation afterwards. Thanks. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. 
Welcome back. I have Dr. Yossi Unterslack, gynecologist trained in reproductive medicine and reproductive medical assistant at Vita Lab. Um, and Dr. Unterslack is explaining and breaking it down beautifully for all of us, just the process when we're looking at infertility, the steps that are taken, um, the, you know, the process when you go and visit your doctor for the first time. I'll be very interested, Dr. Unterslack. We are living through pretty stressful times. Um, and of course, people are with the, this pandemic and the impact it's having um, on on um, an emotional level and obviously financial level. Just there's, there's stress all around. Um, have you noticed um, an increase in, and I suppose it's probably over, you know, it's the, the time's not long enough, but, but do you notice that lifestyle plays a big part in a person's ability to um, fall pregnant? And, and would so, this have, would this impact? So it's, it's an excellent question, Nick. It's a question that we get asked every day in our offices. And, you know, there's, there is conflicting data as to how significant an impact lifestyle has on fertility. We certainly know there are certain lifestyles which are really bad and, um, and are not conducive to, to fertility. And, you know, if we sit with a couple who want, you know, maybe um, morbidly obese, smoking heavily, drinking certain recreational drugs, those are certainly lifestyle factors which will affect fertility. Um, if we look through kind of history and we look at fertility rates during periods of severe stress, we don't really see much of an, a, a, a knockoff effect on fertility rates. Um, certainly at the moment, it's very early to tell whether there has been a reduction in, um, in the fertility rate. There has been a reduction, interestingly enough, on patients reporting for initial visits, first and second trimester visits. Now, that's difficult to say if there are less pregnancies going on at the moment or if people are delaying their visits, waiting for things to get a bit better so they don't expose themselves at a hospital, for example, to coronavirus. So, so, so initial data looks like there may be a little bit of a drop in fertility rates um, coming out of 2020. Um, but we, we, we obviously have to wait to see the true birth stats because that will really be a, a, a good indicator for us whether um, this epidemic, this pandemic has affected fertility rates. In our clinic, um, we haven't necessarily seen a, a big jump, but, but again, we must remember that unfortunately in South Africa, fertility care is, is funded privately by the patient, right. and uh, this is a very difficult time for people financially. So whether we would see um, patients who are struggling now due to the pandemic, um, it's difficult to say because unfortunately the costs of fertility treatment are are incredibly high. So it's so difficult to answer that question, um, and we kind of need to give it a couple of more weeks and months and see and see what happens to the fertility rates. Mm. But 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 certainly lifestyle does play quite a, a big part, and, and people Absolutely. should you know should really consider that as you've said when you've got that year um, period where you're having unprotected sex and you're wanting to fall pregnant, you should be looking at lifestyle Absolutely. and you know. You know, Nikki, we can't change our sperm. We can't change our eggs. If we are born with certain genes which make it um, difficult for us to conceive, we can't change those, unfortunately. But we can control those lifestyle factors, and we can modify these lifestyle factors, which will improve our fertility. And, you know, it's incredibly liberating for patients when I explain that to them because they just want to do something to improve their outcome. And mm -hmm. and we, we can't change their eggs, unfortunately. We have to work with poor quality eggs that we have. But when I sit with a couple 
and I say, this is something you can do to improve your outcome. Even if it's improve, you know, losing a bit of weight so that when we, if we have to do IVF, we get a couple more eggs that can improve the prognosis in the end of the day. You know, patients want to do anything that they can do to improve their outcome. So, so they grab the opportunity and, and, and it would be great if, you know, doctors were more honest with patients and say to them, look, these are factors that you can and need to improve on, which will improve your outcome because that patients do want to be able to, to, to improve their outcomes. And of course, all areas of their lives would improve quite dramatically with that kind Absolutely. of shift in lifestyle. So if you, if someone comes to you and you mention this, the, the change in lifestyle, do you have a waiting period? Do you say, um, let's try this before we move to the next stage, which may be IVR, if that is the next step? Sure. So, so there are, there are certain, um, kind of studies that have shown that a, a woman who loses five to 10% of her body weight significantly improves her, her reproductive outcomes when it comes to, to IVF, um, ICSI and treatments like that. So, so we do try and at least achieve those numbers. Um, but, but it's incredible, you know, if you sit with a couple and we say, this is where you are. And if you get to this point, this is how we think your prognosis will improve. It's amazing to see the transformation in these couples when they come and see us a couple of months later. Um, and you know, I, I like to kind of keep, uh, keep record of um, before and after photos of some of my patients because it's so inspirational to, with their permission, show other patients how you can really improve your outcomes. And, and, and for us, it's an incredible thing. If a couple come and see us and just by losing weight, they fall pregnant and don't require any intervention, um, you know, it, it, it's really, um, it, for us, that's, that's the greatest thing because we, we, we strongly believe in, you know, as being doctors first and foremost. And if we can improve people's um, you know, lifestyles and quality of life, that's really what, what we, what we would, you know, make us most happy. Mm, so incredible, and I'm sure so empowering as well. Um, Dr. Unterslack, so are we looking at prostate cancer? Are we looking at testicular cancer? A young man, we know testicular cancer does affect younger men, um, and he needs to go for radiotherapy or whatever the treatment is. What do you advise young men or older men do you, in terms of being able to reproduce later on after they've gone through treatment? Okay, so so – you're 100% correct in saying there are certain cancers which are more prevalent, well, which are only prevalent in men, things like testicular and prostate cancer. But the, 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 the harsh reality, unfortunately, is that all chemotherapeutic agents, so whether the patient has te- cancer in his testicle or in, in a brain or a lung, the, the, the treatment of that cancer, the chemotherapy, is incredibly toxic um, to the stem cells and the testicles which make sperm. And so we actually encourage all men who are, you know, in their reproductive years or pre-reproductive years who have this, this unfortunate cancer diagnosis um, to freeze sperm prior to their chemotherapy. And it really should be something that's initiated immediately at the time of diagnosis because we know that the oncologist's objective is to save our patients' lives. And um, they want to get the patients onto chemotherapy as quickly as possible. But as soon as that first chemotherapy starts, the damage to the testicle starts as well. And so if we can see these patients as early as possible and start to freeze some sperm samples before they start their chemotherapy, 
um, they, they've got an excellent prognosis to conceive post their chemotherapy. If, if they have sperm still after the chemotherapy, often that sperm is damaged and the reproductive outcomes are affected with increased rate of miscarriages, etc. And if they've frozen sperm before the chemotherapy and they are now rendered completely infertile or azospermic, as we call it, lacking any sperm in the ejaculate after the chemotherapy, then having frozen sperm gives us so many options to help them achieve um, a conception. So, so, so specifically, yes, the prostate and the, and the, and the testicular cancers, but any cancer in a male patient um, should be referred for um, sperm freezing prior to chemotherapy. Mm. And is the process a complicated one? So with men, it's actually quite easy. Obviously, um, obviously, we, this would be with men who are post-pubertal and uh, specifically men who've, who've got a bit of a sexual history because we do need them to ejaculate a sample for us. Um, and so for men in that, in that group, it's relatively easy. They would come in and as many times as they can before they start chemotherapy would bring us a sample. Now, this can be done with either masturbation at home or on site, Couples who are uncomfortable with masturbation, um, we have special um, condoms which have no spermicide, which we send them home with. They can have intercourse with their partners and then take the contents from the condom, bring it into the clinic, and we can freeze their sperm. So for that group of patients, relatively easy. It's obviously more difficult in our younger group of patients um, who have no sexual history and are not comfortable to masturbate. Um, and in that case, we, we, we do have the ability to put the, the, the male to sleep and in his sleep, um, we can um, we use certain techniques which achieve an ejaculate um, without him even knowing that it had happened. And um, that's an option for, for, for younger boys who are post-puberty, who um, are not comfortable to masturbate or don't have a sexual history. Um, that's certainly an option for us. It is obviously a, a slightly bigger procedure because we'd have to put them asleep for the procedure, but they wake up feeling no different. They don't know that anything's been done to them while they were sleeping, and we can have sperm frozen in the freezer. And then as a last resort, we can do testicular tissue freezing. So we can either do a small testicular biopsy and then um, retrieve testicular tissue and then freeze sperm that's in that tissue, or we can freeze pre-pubescent um, testicular tissue um, for um, transplanting at later stage when a male has completed his chemotherapy and hope that this tissue that's unaffected by the chemotherapy will yield, will yield normal sperm later on in his reproductive years. That is still a considered a, repro uh, um, a um, experimental treatment, but it has been done, and there are good cases in the literature of success in young boys pre-puberty who frozen testicular tissue before the cancer therapy. Absolutely amazing. So the message I want to just leave our listeners with before I say goodbye to you is it's not just the testicular prostate cancer. It's you're looking at all cancers. If you have to go for chemotherapy or radiotherapy as well, you should be looking at freezing your sperm. As you said, you've got various ways of doing so. And I think that's a very important message to get across. And also another important message which stood out for me was looking at your life lifestyle, men and women listening, um, and knowing that, um, you know, you have a certain amount of, of control over that. Well, let, let me not be too specific about that. Um, Dr. Untersak, thank you so much for coming onto the show and explaining it so beautifully. And I really do hope that our listeners walk away with that very important message that if they are going um, to, to go through any kind of treatment that they should look at freezing sperm. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for having me on the show, Nikki.